This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a bootcamp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the genie out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Crossroads. I'm still in New York and I'm still talking to Thought Butters and it's still great. And I'm joined by Christina. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do. Hello, thanks for having me. My name is Christina. I am a developer at ThoughtBot. I just finished my apprenticeship. My last day as an apprentice is actually today. Uh, it's a Friday. And then Monday I will be joining as a full developer at ThoughtBot. Awesome. And before you were doing your apprenticeship, where were you at? Before my apprenticeship, I went through a coding boot camp. I went to Flatiron School. Mm -hmm. And then before that, I was a product manager for about three years. And then before that, I was a designer. Wow. So you can build a product now from yep. like zero <laughs> to 100. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I've done kind of the cycle and I eventually wanted to end up in development. So mm. I'm excited to be here. That's really amazing. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about what you were doing before you became a designer. Were you, did you go to art school? Were you trained? I actually went to school for journalism, and I feel like that was because that's the closest that I got to design. I think I didn't realize that I could go to like a actual design school. And then when I realized that journalism wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing, I kind of just bootstrapped myself. I made a portfolio. I volunteered with a lot of organizations to build that portfolio up, and then eventually started working professionally as a designer. How many volunteering projects did you have under your belt before you started working professionally? I would say maybe about six. So six volunteer projects and then a couple of just kind of experimental things on my own so that I had a fully rounded portfolio and then yeah, started working full time. What were you doing to learn outside of your, your main job so that uh, you could build your portfolio up? Yeah, I mean, I think the internet is an amazing resource. There's a ton of resources on the internet and also just traditional books about design and technology and product management, all these things that I've done, reading people's blog posts, Twitter, listening to podcasts, all of those things. Awesome. awesome. So you were able to kind of like create your own curriculum, really? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and did you replicate that experience when you decided to go into product management? Yep. Absolutely. And again, when you went mm -hmm. into development. Yeah, well, the, the the development piece, I did a bunch of coding on my own for a while. Right. And then I did actually formalize it by going to a, a boot camp. And I think that that really helped. That's interesting. So where in the design phase of your career, you didn't go to a formal sort of brushing up skills environment like or an equivalent of a design boot camp, because there are quite a few which have popped up now. And then you didn't do that with product management. I didn't, but I did actually take a lot of workshops in both right. of those. So that's actually another big resource. We have General Assembly here that has awesome just kind of one-day workshops or weekend workshops. And then also through other organizations. Girl Develop It, I did a ton of workshops with them when I was learning to code. So that stuff kind of helped level me up kind of in a, in a smaller piece. But then when I knew that I wanted to do development professionally, I wanted to really go all in. How did you choose which coding bootcamp to go to? That's a great question. So there are, you know, a group that are considered the best, and I would consider Flatiron School among them. And I did actually a one month boot camp prep with App Academy, and they guarantee you acceptance to at least one of those top boot camps or you get your money back. 
And if you choose to go to App Academy, you can use the money that you spent for the bootcamp prep to go to App Academy. So I was like, this is just what I'm going to do. I'm just paying it forward and this is going to be a free bootcamp prep. And then eventually I decided to go to Flatiron School. I didn't even apply to App Academy, actually. I decided to go to Flatiron School because of the culture. The mm. culture there is just really warm and people care about you as a person. It's a really intense environment, all of the boot camps. So I think it's important to have kind of like a cultural piece so that you, you don't burn out. So that for me was made a big difference. That's really awesome. I mean, one of the things that you've spoken about is the power of the internet as a resource to help you learn and how you, you used blog posts and podcasts to kind of understand as part of your learning resources. You've also mentioned that culture is really important in order to find your place and the best sort of scenario to learn in. How do you know that a place has a good culture if you've never been there, if you don't know anyone who's gone through that process and all you have is a web page and like a very slick social media marketing or content marketing? Like how do you know the real deal? I think different companies go to different lengths to communicate that. Sometimes you do just have a web page with like a slick or a quirky type of personality, but sometimes people go above and beyond to really show what their culture is all about. So for example, at ThoughtBot, we put out a ton of open source. We have the apprenticeship program, you know, podcasts, all this stuff. And in our handbook, we explicitly communicate this is what our culture is. Through all of our products, we communicate what our culture is. Similarly, with Flatiron School, they are pretty upfront about the things that they care about and the things that we would do as a community and the things that we won't do. And one specific example is another boot camp says that you should be prepared to spend 100 hours a week learning. And Flatiron School was very explicit to say, we're not going to spend 100 hours a week learning. And I think that that's more realistic. I mean, I've had lots of crazy jobs where I've worked 80 hours a week, 60 hours a week, but 100, I think, is like pretty impossible. <laughs> I mean, I know that people listening can't see my face right now, yeah. but it's, it's, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of frowning going on and a lot of like confusion. Yeah. I mean, and it was it was really intense. It was no walk in the park. But like I said, there were people there that cared about you and kind of help, we helped each other through and sometimes it's just as important to say the things that you don't stand for yes, than yes. As, it, as it is the things that you do stand for. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, you mentioned girl development and culture. And we're at this really interesting moment in tech where I think a lot of companies are in a position to put some clear boundaries around their values because values can be sprawling. Mm -hmm. Values can seem as though they encompass everyone and everything, but Mm -hmm. those aren't really values. Those Mm -hmm. are statements that don't really aren't held accountable to anything. So what sort of advice would you give to someone who is, so we've talked about culture and the way that you find out about a company's culture depends variably on how willing that company is to go to communicate that culture. Mm -hmm. How do you then go from a place of, hmm, this seems like the real deal to engaging with it before you sign on the dotted line. Sure. And just to say that, you know, even for companies that don't explicitly say what they stand for, there are other ways to find out, right? Glassdoor is a resource. You can read what other people have said about a company, word of mouth. Whatever the culture is, eventually it's going to get out. (laughs) Right, 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 right. But for those that seem to have a good culture and I want to engage with them, I think a a great first step is just to get some face-to-face time with very little kind of on the line. Like, Mm. let's get together for coffee. Or, you know, like if it was ThoughtBot, let's have a a chat. If it was Flatiron School, let's go to the campus and check it out. And that's actually how I got introduced to their campus. They had an event there where the current class was presenting something. And I went to go see those presentations. And it was a very stealthy way to check out the campus and check out the bathrooms. (laughs) 
but just like a very casual, let's get together for coffee, etc. And I would say if you are looking to get something out of it, if you're the one who's going to get more out of it, try to see if you can offer something at that meeting. You know, now being a bootcamp graduate and just having finished the apprenticeship program, I get a lot of emails from bootcamp grads or people who are about to graduate. They say like, oh, I would love to talk to you about this or that. So would I, but I don't have time to talk to all these people. So if someone said, Here's something that I can bring to the table that I think you might be interested in. That's a way for people to stand out. And maybe that person would meet with you over, you know, the 30 other people who are asking. Yeah, that's really, really, really useful. One thing that I know about you from having hung out with you very, very shortly this last fortnight is that you're very well prepared and you're very diligent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that goes so far against our ideas of what a developer is and ought to be. I think there's this idea that there's like a nerdy genius who can mm -hmm. somehow like take random ideas from the air, pluck them and turn them into brilliant products. Absolutely. And keen to dispel that myth because it's just not true. It feels like it's from my experience in tech, that's I, I rarely see those people and they're rarely nerdy or geniuses. Mm -hmm. They're just mm -hmm. like awkward. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how do you deal with the fact that you've actually invested a lot of time in building up a well-rounded career and it's been very systematic and it's been very well organized. But a lot of other people have a way of working, which is just like, let's just figure it out as we go along. I think I actually fall into that category of people. And where do you find your space in the tech industry? Because I think there's a lot of us who are just like, let's just figure it out as we go along. In the startup industry, when you're making products, there's very little accountability at the beginning. Afterwards, you get a board and you get all sorts of ways to be accountable. But how do you deal with dealing with people like me? <laughs> sure. I mean, thank you for saying that I'm diligent. I do think that some of these things have been planned out and then some have just kind of happened. You know, when I started doing design, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a designer and then I'm going to be a product manager and then I'm going to be a developer. I always knew that I was interested in development, but I hadn't necessarily mapped that out. There comes a time where it's like, okay, well, I think I would like to try something different. So I do think it's a balance. But I do think that there's a benefit in having a goal in the future, kind mm -hmm. of knowing what you want to be doing in the next month, in the next year, and ultimately what your values are and what's important to you in your career. Definitely. So today's the last day of your apprenticeship here. Yep. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm excited. It was a really amazing experience. I'm a little bit sad that I won't get to hog everyone's time as much as I have been <laughs> with my apprenticeship. Everyone's been really generous to sit and explain things with me and pair with me on, you know, like my own side projects, all that stuff. And that won't end. We'll continue to pair and we'll continue to have side projects. But maybe the amount of time that we spend together just learning and exploring, I think, will be reduced since we'll be working on client projects. Yeah, that makes sense. When you were a product manager, what sort of products were you managing? So I managed two products during the time I was a product manager. One was a business intelligence product. So market research, we were a market research company putting out our own product. And then I took that from a paper book, which is what it was when I got there. And I started as a designer there to an iOS iPad app. And then ultimately a web platform that was like a self-serve place where you can read kind of the qualitative research that we had done and also read and search through the quantitative data analysis that we do. Awesome. And then the other one was a mobile app. I used to work at Animoto, so it's a video app that makes it easy to create fun videos. That's really great. 
How do you feel about transitioning from a product-centric way of doing things to a consulting way of doing things? I do think that here it is similar. We are a product-centric company. I came here specifically because I didn't have to let go of those other things, right? I was a little bit hesitant. I didn't know what it would be like to, to be a developer, and I didn't want to be just a cog in a machine that you know, someone else is telling me what to do, and I didn't have a say in any of that. And I thought that this was a really good place to use those skills, use the design skills, the product skills, and development altogether in consulting. And I do think that here we are pretty product-centric. I think maybe other places, depending on where you work, it might be different. But I think that all that stuff funneled really well into my role now. Brilliant. Because it's your last day, many might say, or rather I'm going to say and then expand that so I seem like I'm, I'm representing a larger group, but I might say that you're about to transition from being a junior developer to a not junior developer. How does that statement sit with you? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. The apprenticeship is for people who most of the time they have worked professionally as a developer somewhere else, and then they just kind of want to level up their skills. And most of them, I actually don't know this number, but <laughs> some of them stay on at ThoughtBots, some don't. But yeah, I think that this is a, a transition from a junior developer to a not so junior full-blown developer. <laughs> what were your expectations of this transition and how are you feeling about it now? Hmm my expectations. Well, you might want to ask me how I'm feeling after Monday. <laughs> I still, I mean, I think it's actually going to be a really smooth transition. So I'm staying on the same project that I was on when I was an apprentice. I already know the team. They're great. I know the code base. So I think that'll be good. The expectations will be different, obviously, because now I'm a billable developer. So things have to move even quicker and I have to make sure that I'm producing at a good rate. But I feel like everything else would probably be the same. The the consulting piece, I've always participated in kind of the, the client aspect and the, the product aspect. So ask me again in a week, but <laughs> I feel like it'll be mostly the same. <laughs> okay, great, great, great. In your journey so far, that's a very cliched phrase, but from where you started, what were the moments where you thought, gosh, I am in way over my head and it would be really great if I could just like disappear for a second or for a lot longer than a second and do something completely different because this is just a bit much. Mm -hmm. That's funny. I feel that way almost every single day. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you for so, saying that. <laughs> so when was the last time? Maybe like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> but I feel like when you're learning new things, all of them are very emotional. So I felt that way with product management as well. But there's something about development that is like a roller coaster, right? When things are broken and nothing's working and you can't figure out why, you feel so bad. And then when you figure out why and you fix it, you feel so amazing. And that's actually what keeps me going in development. It's so exciting to make something work. It's quite addictive as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There are a lot of high fives around the office. <laughs> People get excited. Yeah. But yeah, I feel that way all the time. One thing that constantly comes up in the conversations that we have with people that we're talking to online about this issue is this idea of imposter syndrome and not knowing how to balance both wanting to be really good at what you do and put your best foot forward, even when you feel like you're reaching beyond where you think you are, but also having a really critical lens on the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. How do you balance selling yourself in an authentic but ambitious way and being 
critical enough for the quality of your work to improve? Yeah, I, I kind of want to bring it back to what you said before about there being no such thing as that genius developer. That was really important for me to realize because I'm not a genius hacker, coder lady, you know, like <laughs> it doesn't like development doesn't necessarily come supernaturally to me or easily. And, you know, being surrounded by so many smart people really brilliant people, it can be nerve wracking. So I had to realize that, right, there is no such thing as this like innate talent. And we saw a Bob Ross thing recently, my desktop background is of Bob Ross. And he says, talent is a pursued interest, anything you're willing to practice, you can do. <laughs> and that really motivates me, you know, mm -hmm. all you have to do is just practice, do the same thing over and over, and you'll get better. So that helps me. And then kind of the other piece of it, I think it's very important to have kind of like composure. It is very hard, right? And things are not going to go well. And it's important to kind of keep it together in those moments. And if you can put that across, I think that that's an authentic way to sell yourself, right? No one's always going to know everything, but we're going to try and we're going to keep it together while we do that. <laughs> okay, awesome. One thing that you've just mentioned is that you're not a genius hacker coder lady, which I mean, I beg to differ, but thank you. How not innately. I work hard at it. <laughs> yeah. You didn't wake up like that. So that's, that's fine. But how do you deal with things that are going on in the tech industry? And I'm thinking about this from sort of a girl developer and the kind of groups and workshops that we're involved in. A lot of the people that are being mentored and that are coming through and asking questions, many women in tech don't know how to navigate the cultural side of the tech industry before sure. they enter it. Sure. And there's also an aspect of all of the news that they get are either this company has failed to support this group in X, Y, or Z ways, or this company is sponsoring this event to support this group. And then that's kind of it, unless you kind of really dig deep and go into conference talks and blog posts, but you don't know where to start, etc. How do you know how a company or a group of companies or a space is treating a group that you belong to if it's a marginalized or underrepresented group. Right. How do you know? I think you either experience it yeah. or you hear from other people being part of and not the dominant group. Like we talk, you know, there are channels for conversation about all that kind of stuff. So it usually comes out. But yeah, you're right that there's there's kind of like the two camps, right? The exclusionary and then kind of like the empowerment camp. But right in this big space in the middle are, you know, non-dominant groups like, I don't know, is that the right term? What would we call it? I have no idea. I'm still navigating this <laughs> stuff. But I would say, I would say like... Marginalized groups. Yeah. Just existing, yeah. you know, and doing a good job and just carrying on. And I think it's important to see that as well, right? right. Like there's this woman developer here and she's here and she's been doing it and she's doing a great job, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Do you feel as though, you know, you mentioned the forms that we have outside of the workplace, but I'm quite cognizant of the fact that within the workplace, there's a lot of different sorts of dynamics going on in lots of different companies. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if an event happens in the political mainstream that affects a marginalized group or a set of marginalized groups, what are your expectations of a workplace environment or the tech industry in general to create a space for you to perform in an optimal way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's important to be supported in the ways that matter most. So obviously it's nice when people show their verbal support, but I think the things that matter are the policies that you have in place, 
and how you execute on those, right? So we're, we're talking about salary, time off, or any other like, you know, protections or affordances. That's a very concrete way to say this is what we stand for and we support our employees in these different ways. Mm -hmm. What the office environment is like, you know, physically. And you, you can't always control how people are going to act, but you can control all of those things. So making a cognizant effort to offer things to employees, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. I've seen companies that say that they're inclusionary and, and are trying to really bolster their diversity efforts, but they don't offer any parental leave. Right. You know, so it's like, well, it's a little bit of a contradiction there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I then wonder if some groups in tech have to work a little bit harder to figure out if it's going to be a good fit. Sure. And of course, the evidence says that we, we do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And sometimes you're surprised, right? Sometimes you think... Tick, 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 tick. <laughs> and then something comes from, yeah. Exactly. Something blows up anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> you yeah. never know. But right. And also on the ground, it's important to hire people who share your values as much as you can and who are going to refrain from harassing fellow employees. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> and just imagine the interview now. I was like, so how do you feel about harassing fellow employees? <laughs> I mean, maybe not explicitly, but yeah. I think that we do have a cultural element to our interview process. So right. the final interview is a full day office visit. Mm. And usually some cultural things come out of that. And mm. that's important too. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's all my questions. I mean, I wonder if you have any, but if not, we will make sure that everyone who responds to this is sent directly away. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm on Twitter at, at Christina ENT. If you guys want to ask me questions, Christina at Thank you, Natalie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.